invited to turn with me this morning to the book of Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, and we will be looking this morning at verses 14 through 17. Romans chapter 8, but to get, up, get the thought of the passage, let's read verses 12 and 13 along with those verses. So we're going to read verses 12 through 17, Romans chapter 8. So then, brothers... We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. There is perhaps no other portion of scripture as Romans chapter 8, that presents for us a full-orbed picture of the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have been seeing in past weeks Paul's treatment of the Holy Spirit in this chapter, a topic, of course, which in many a church, and I say particularly many a Reformed church, there is not much said about the Holy Spirit. By way of review, we have seen in the first 13 verses of Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit affords believers in Christ freedom from sin. Verses 1 to 3, the Spirit frees us from the condemnation of sin. Verses 5 through 13, the Spirit frees us from the control of sin. On the one hand, the Spirit frees us from the penalty of sin. On the other hand, the Spirit frees us from the power of sin. And this morning, we come to consider a second major work of the Spirit with respect to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this, that the Spirit affords them favor as sons of God. The Spirit affords them favor as sons of God. Favor defined in terms of privileges, blessings into which they come in consequence of their union with Christ. These blessings and privileges are, we would say, myriad, because as the Apostle Paul in his doxology of God says of him in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And in exploring our theme, the Spirit affords us favor as sons of God, we find in verses 14 through 17, this dominant, overarching theme, namely that the Spirit assures believers that they are sons of God. The Spirit assures believers in Christ that they are sons of God. And the question is, as we examine this text, on what grounds is this assurance established? First of all, this assurance that they are sons of God 
is established on the grounds that they experience the lordship of the Spirit. They experience the lordship of the Spirit in at least two ways, verses 14 and 16. First of all, verse 14, they are guided in the ways of the Spirit. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, Paul says, are sons of God. Now already, I know I've touched on two hot-button issues, which, of course, we typically, as Reformed Christians, get on our toes. Two hot-button issues, the word experience and the leading of the Spirit. By the word experience, we're not speaking of emotionalism. We're not speaking of that which is purely subjective because there is a brand of Christianity today that associates the Holy Spirit with emotionalism, with ecstatic feelings, with feelings that we would say are elated feelings in which sometimes people go off on a wild frenzy. The Oxford Dictionary defines experience as practical contact with and observation of facts or events. Experience as practical contact with an observation of facts or events. So I want us to think of that for a moment. I want to transpose that thought, the facts and events, to the objective truths, the objective verities of the word of God. And the way we are using experience this morning is to say that based on the objective teachings of the Word of God, by examination of our lives, we can determine whether our lives are in sync with the objective realities of the Word of God with respect to what it means to be under the Lordship of Christ. Typically, in Reformed churches, the word experience is shunned. Instead, the word that is most often used is experiment. They talk about that which is experimental. Now, there's a reason why I typically don't use experimental, and here's the reason why. Because there is a side of biblical Christianity, there is that side of lordship under the Spirit, which, I'm going to say boldly, has a subjective element. And I'm submitting to you this morning that lordship under the Spirit is something that the Christian, based on the Word of God, experiences in real practical terms. Once again, we're not talking about emotionalism. By the way, let me read to you this part of the song we sung this morning. Stanza 2 of 91. Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. I ask no dream... No prophet, ecstasies, no sudden rending of the veil of clay, no angel visitant, no opening skies. What are you saying there? I'm not asking for rapturous, subjective, emotionally charged experience. And this song is spot on correct. Look at number four, stanza four. Teach me to feel that thou art always nigh. Do you see that? There's a subjective element to the Christian life. 
And we'll see how that develops in our text as we move along. But let's look at the other hot-button topic, the leading of the Spirit. The leading of the Spirit. In a while, we'll discuss what Paul means by this expression, led by the Spirit, but... First, it is important we know the significance of the introductory particle for in verse 14. And the question is, what is the word for, therefore? What is the word for, therefore? And here's the answer. As a connective for verses 13 and 14, the word for is explanatory. That is to say, it amplifies the B part of verse 13, which says this, But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And taken with the rest of verse 14, the word for serves to explain at least two truths. First of all, that those who by the Spirit, that is through the Spirit's enabling, energizing power, are mortifying, that is to say, are putting to death the sinful deeds of the body, verse 13, are in effect being led by the Spirit of God. I want us to see that. And by virtue of their being led by the Spirit, they are so living, the fact that they are so living proves they make it clearly evident that they are in truth and in fact sons of God. Do you see the connection? Let's read the verses together. Verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Interestingly, in the Greek, the conclusion is emphatic, so that the force of the text, the force of the text is as follows. For as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the ones who are sons of God. That's precisely how it is in the Greek text. And I want us to know this particular, the last clause. These are the ones who are the sons of God. So what the writer is saying, first of all, Paul is saying, first of all, is that by virtue of one, here's a Christian, mortifying the deeds of the body, putting to death the sinful deeds of the body, saying no to the sinful deeds of the body, by so doing, they make it clear that they are being led by the Spirit. Second, the word for serves to explain the truth as to why those who are mortifying the flesh, those who are putting sin to death, will live. Question, on what basis can we know that if we are mortifying the deeds of the body, if we are saying no to sin, if we are pursuing holiness, how do we know that we are going to live? How do we know that indeed we are in possession of eternal life? Here's verse 14, 4. That is to say, because on account of their being led by the Spirit, they are effectively and manifestly sons of God. That's the thrust of the text. Now, with this, Paul is making, I submit to you, a profoundly powerful point here in verse 14. Because what Paul is ultimately doing here in verse 14, by this explanatory verse, explaining what he said in verse 13, he's actually providing, he's furnishing the believer with a wealth of assurance as regards their salvation and the reality of their being in truth and in fact sons of God. 
In fact, let me show you the development of his thought. If we trace all that Paul had said from verse 1. Remember now, Romans chapter 8 is all about assurance of salvation. And if we trace all that Paul has said from verse 1 to this point, in essence, what Paul is saying is asking the question, how can you and I tell if we are in truth and in fact saved, if that we are in truth and in fact sons of God, children of God? Paul, how can we know? Listen. First of all, verse 1, because you are in Christ Jesus, because a union has been established. Secondly, because of the liberating power of the Spirit that has set you free from the law of sin and death, verse 2. You can know that you are saved, beloved, because of the substitutionary atoning work of the Lord Jesus, which, he has, which has earned for us the righteous demands of the law, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, verses 3 and 4. You can know that you are saved because you are setting your mind not on the flesh, but on the spirit. You are setting your minds according to the spirit. You are living according to the spirit. Versus, and what you are doing on top of that, you are mortifying sin daily. You are saying no to sin. You are dealing with sin in your life because what he's saying here, these practical realities then attest to the fact that you are being led by the Spirit of God, and that shows then that you are sons of God. Do you see the development of Paul's thought? That being the case, here's the word of application for us this morning. And the question is, by the way you are living, I challenge myself, there's a question for us all, by the way you are living, is it manifestly clear that you daily are saying no to sin, no to the flesh. You are putting to death the deeds of the body. And that being the case, are you then being led by the Spirit? And if those things are true, here's what Paul says, then you are among those who are indeed sons of God. I ask the question, do these scriptural indicators square with your life? You see, that's the experience of the Spirit's Lordship we're talking about this morning. We're talking about the fact that we can know definitely whether we are being led of the Spirit of God, whether we are truly sons of God, if these facts, if these verities, if these realities are part and parcel of our lives. You see, that's where it's at when it comes to the matter of our assurance that we are saved. It is not just simply a matter of what I did once and for all 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But the question is, what is my life like in relation to sin? What is my life like in relation to worldliness? What is my life like in relation to the leading of the Spirit of God? Am I taking the course of direction that the Spirit is taking? Am I walking in step with the Spirit? And by His energizing power, am I daily putting to death the sinful deeds of the body. Indeed, Paul categorically and soberingly makes this clear in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, where he says this. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5, 24. He says this, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here's the truth in a nutshell. The faith that saves, the faith that justifies, is the faith that sanctifies, is the faith 
that is designed to make us holy. You see, what we find here in our text clearly debunks the idea that one can be truly saved and continue in a life of sin. Now, the question to which we return is this. What does Paul mean when he refers to the sons of God as being led by the Spirit? What is meant by the leading of the Spirit? And here's an expression that's often misunderstood and misused. Established one's subjective claims of receiving from God private subjective messages concerning certain decisions that one is to make in one's life. For example, here's a person who says... The Lord is leading me to marry this person. Or the Lord is leading me to pursue this career. Or you might hear a preacher say that he's being led by the Spirit. How often we hear a preacher say, you know, I've been led of the Lord to preach to you this morning on this topic. May I suggest this to you? The truth is, that's not Paul's idea here when he uses the expression, the leading of the Spirit. And why is it important, we stress, that we should not expect God to communicate with us in those specific subjective ways whereby we can definitively, dogmatically say, God led me, the Spirit led me. Why is it that as Bible-believing Christians who take the Bible seriously, we don't use the expression, I'm led of the Lord to do this, to pursue this job, to pursue that career, to Visit this person, as good as those things may be, why do we not use those terms? Why? Because that's not how Paul is using the term here. It's important that we stress this because the claim of being led of the Spirit to make specific decisions is, to begin with, highly subjective and non-verifiable. And because God is not into confusing his people, because God is not intent on leaving people in doubt with regard to his will. What he has done is this. He has left us his word, his word, the scriptures which tell us everything we need to know as they relate to life and godliness. Indeed, we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for instruction, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that, here it comes, the man of God might be complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Here's the point. Everything that God tells us we need to know is right here in the book. Now, let me qualify all that I've said with this statement. We are looking at certain job. We are looking to make a certain decision. What do we do? Here's what we are supposed to do. We are to to commit our ways to the Lord. And the Bible says he will direct our paths. Correct? Yes. But because we know very well that there are times we make decisions which we thought with conviction was God's leading, was God's directive, we were proven wrong. That is why we cannot definitively, dogmatically, and conclusively make the claim that God led us to do so and so. Indeed, after the event, after things work out, we can look back and we can say, indeed, God led, but we can't do it before. So here's the point. As we said last week, whenever we want to know the meaning of a particular text, 
three things, and you want to write down these three things. Number one, what are they? Context. If you're taking notes, write down the second thing. In fact, I'm going to give you a shortened way. Just put ditto. Ditto. Same thing. Context, context, context. And let me make this point that contextually, we're not left in the dark. We're not left in the dark as to precisely what Paul means by being led by the Spirit. The context helps us to know that. Because based on his whole teaching here in Romans chapter 8, to be led by the Spirit of God means, first of all, that through the Spirit, we are brought, Romans chapter 8 verse 1, into union with Christ. Through the Spirit, we are brought to faith in Christ. We are united with Christ such that we are set free from the condemnation of sin and death. There are certain things we know for sure, 100%, we can say, the Lord, the, the Spirit led me. When a person gets saved, based on Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the Spirit led them to faith in Christ, to becoming united with Christ. To be led by the Spirit means that one is freed from the dominion of sin, Romans chapter 6, verse 14, such that one does not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, Romans chapter 8, verse 4. You notice there the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the loss of the flesh. In short, the leading of the Spirit, then, we could say in a word, what is the leading of the Spirit based on Romans chapter 8? The leading of the Spirit concerns, it's another way of say, speaking of what we refer to as the sanctifying work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. The Spirit leads, beloved, with respect to doing God's known, revealed will. Now, to further grasp the underlying idea of what it means to be led by the Spirit, we'll want to note 1 Corinthians 12, verse 2, because in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 2, Paul uses the same verb, the same root verb that he uses here in Romans 8, verse 14, where he speaks of the leading of the Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul makes reference to the Corinthian Christians who, during their pre-pagan days, the days that we're living in sin, how does, how does he characterize them? He says that they were led astray to mute idols. What do you see here as the inherent idea of the word led? The idea is this, that they were under the control. They were under the ruling. They were under the influence. They were under the directive of idols. They were carried along. They were led along. Similarly, we could say here that those who are led by the Spirit are those who are under the Spirit's control. Indeed, as suggested by Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, they walk, that is to say, they live by the controlling influence of the Spirit such that they do not gratify the deeds of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. I would say further, that's what Paul means in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, when he says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. Because just as a drunken man is under a spirit of another kind, he's under the spirit of liquor, the spirit of wine, Paul is saying, don't be drunk with that spirit, but be filled, be drunk with the Spirit. 
And just in case we think Paul is into ecstasy, read what follows all the way into chapter 6. Everything he says, not one thing has to do with ecstasy, not one thing has to do with emotional thrills. Everything has to do with practical Christian living. Because among other things, a spirit-filled Christian is going to be a child who obeys parents. A spirit-filled Christian is going to be a husband who loves his wife. A spirit-filled Christian is going to be a wife who submits to her husband. A spirit-filled Christian is going to be one who is in warfare with the spiritual forces such that he has to take to him the whole armor of God. Read the scriptures in context. That's the idea. So the Spirit grants those who have been set free from the condemnation of sin, from the condemnation and control of sin, the assurance that they are sons of God. And as we have seen, such assurance is established on the grounds that they experience the Lordship of Christ. They experience the Lordship of the Spirit, evidenced first of all by the fact that they are guided in the ways. They are guided in the ways of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, as our text puts it. So here's my second point this morning under that sub-point. Their experience of the Lordship of the Spirit, whereby they are assured that they are sons of God, is evidenced not only by the fact that they are guided in the ways of the Spirit, but by this fact they are given the witness of the Spirit. You see, as the one who sovereignly leads believers, in Christ, the Holy Spirit is the one whose office, whose authority it is to impress on them the reality of their being truly sons of God, children of God. Listen, beloved, I can't do that. If you come and you ask me, am I a child of God? At best, I can make a courteous concession and say, I think so, I believe so. But I can't really assure you. No preacher can do that. You cannot assure yourself. I cannot assure myself. It is the office, it is the distinct office and prerogative and function of the Holy Spirit to witness with our spirit that we are children of God. By the way, do you see there the experiential side of it? Yes? That's why I didn't go for experimental, because there is such a work of the Holy Spirit, beloved, whereby subjectively, as he works on our hearts and minds, he impresses on our hearts, yes, you are a child of God. And that is why we read in verse 16, look at verse 16, the Spirit himself. Do you notice there the Lordship of the Spirit? It is his distinct office, the Spirit himself, not another. An angel cannot do it. I do not ask for angelic manifestation. Your dreams cannot do it. Your feelings cannot do it. It is the Spirit himself who bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And as I said, the fact that our spirit is brought into the picture clearly implies that the Holy Spirit witnesses internally and experientially to us that we are children of God, that we are truly saved. I'm going to ask a question. Do you, my friends, have the witness of the Spirit that you are a child of God? That's what the Bible says. So the question becomes, what are the tokens of that witness? You see, we're going back to Scripture. What are the tokens, what are the evidences of the witness of the Holy Spirit? And among other things, here it comes, 
His leading us to victory over sin, as we saw in verses 14 and 15. So here's the truth. Are you having victory over sin? I'm not talking about perfection. Yes, we're going to stumble, we're going to fall, we're going to do stupid things, we're going to make mess of things sometimes, we're going to slip up badly at times, but here's the truth. More often than not, what's the tenor of our lives? Are we listing, are we gravitating toward the spirit whereby we are following his dictates, or is it that we are constantly walking, hankering after the flesh? So the fact that he's leading us to victory over sin, as we saw in verses 14 and 15, he's causing us to seek and affectionately cry out to God, Abba Father, as Paul is going to make clear later. This is a token of the witness the Spirit bears with our spirit that we are sons of God. By his presence, says one commentator, he forms within us affections suited to our relationship, begets in us desires after the enjoyment of the Father's love. Now, earlier in chapter 5, verse 5, notice the experiential aspect of things, as we have been saying, that life in the Spirit, that to be saved, there is a subjective side of Christian living, because remember in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, how did Paul speak of the Holy Spirit in relation to the believer? He says this, and Paul there alludes to the witness of the Spirit, even though he doesn't use the term. He says this, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you know the reality of that love? And so the point is, even as we observe in our lives, even as we see in our lives evidences of the Spirit's Lordship, the fact that we are dealing with sin, the fact that we are keeping in step with the Spirit of God, the Spirit in conjunction with our spirit, what does he do? He impresses on our hearts, he impresses on our minds by a way of witness that we are truly children of God. Now let me caution here. Let me issue a word of caution. We don't want to stop there. Because you see, we can go to an extreme, believers can go to an extreme where they say, listen, I'm looking on this subjective side of thing. I mean, could I be wrong? Could, you know, how do I know? Now watch this. Beyond the subjective witness of the Spirit, we need to bear in mind what comes first and foremost, always, is this. The objective witness we have in Scripture. The objective witness we have in Scripture that we are saved, and what is that? First John 5, verse 13, where John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. One can have a false witness. One might be just going off subjective impressions, but how can we know definitely that those subjective impressions are for real? Scripture must back it up. And that's where 1 John 5, 13 comes in. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So the Spirit grants believers in Christ. Those who have been set free from the condemnation of sin and from the condemnation, the control of sin, the assurance that they are sons of God. Which assurance is established on the grounds that they have experienced the Lordship of the Spirit. Second, this assurance is grounded on the fact that they enjoy the liberty of the Spirit. According to Paul, the Christian's assurance of being savingly related to God as his children, 
is evidenced by the multifaceted freedoms into which the Spirit brings them, having delivered them from sin's condemnation and from sin's control. And the question is, what are some of the freedoms into which the Spirit brings them? Let me list at least four. First of all, indemnity from slavish dread. Now, it doesn't mean that the believer in Christ cannot, from time to time, slip into fear. We know if we say otherwise, it would not be true. Because here's the truth. There are some Christians who say, and I can't say that they are, but suggested in Scripture, it is possible for one to be saved, truly saved, and yet because of a lack of growth, because of a lack of maturity, be given to doubts and fears. There are Christians who are crippled and plagued with fear. But what it means when we say that the Spirit of God, through the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God brings them into indemnity from slavish dread. What, what we mean is that in principle, they should not have to dread. They should not have to fear. They should not be in doubt. Why? Look at verse 15a. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And elsewhere, Paul writes this, he says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 7, For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love, of power, and of a sound mind. Here's the truth. Liberty in the spirit, liberty by the spirit, frees us from slavish dread. And the expression spirit of slavery here in Romans chapter 8 verse 15 summarizes the condition of the unsaved, the condition that one was in before being saved. You see, all kinds of fears mark the lives of those who are outside of Christ. Listen, there's a sense of terror. They derive from being convicted of their sins, from sensing the horror, the guilt of their sins before the holy and righteous God. Such was the case of Felix. You remember in Acts 24, 25, as Paul preached the gospel to him, as he opened up the subject of righteousness, judgment to come, word of God says Felix trembled. Shati, what? He sent Paul away. He says, that's enough for now. It is possible that even a service like this, there are people under the sound of the word of God sense this convicting power, this convicting presence of the Holy Spirit, and they would do exactly what Felix did. Go your way for now. There's a slavish fear of God. The slavish fear of God, that dread of his judgment. There's a fear and dread of dying. There are believers, even believers have the dread, the fear of dying of being lost for all eternity and consistent with the truth that as Christians we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Here's what the writer of Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 tells us. He says this, through death Christ, and here's a word of assurance for us this morning. He says there that through, through death Christ destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We do not have to fear as Christians. Why? Because through the liberating power of the Spirit of God, we have been freed from the condemnation of sin. We have been freed from the prospect of judgment. We have an assured eternity. Why? Because we are led of the Spirit of God and we are sons of God. That's what Paul says. That's what the Word of God says. 
So if the first freedom they have is indemnity from slavish dread, but look at the B part of verse 15. Incorporation into God's family he says this by way of contrast, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. As we have previously seen in verse 9 of Romans chapter 8, not everyone is savingly related to God. The world thinks so. Everybody believes that when everybody dies, everybody's going to heaven. Everybody believes that everybody's a child of God. The Bible says no, because he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, if any man does not have, here it comes once again, if any man does not have the Spirit of God, he doesn't belong to him. Do you have the Spirit of God? Is he resident in your life? And not only is he resident, is he in control of your life? So that as it stands, humanity falls into two distinct categories. Humanity is divided into two categories, two camps. Those who belong to God and those who do not. Let me say this. Here's a sobering truth. As it stands this morning, every single one of us, whether or not we know it, is either a child of God or a child of the devil. It's a harsh truth. It's a harsh truth. It's a sobering truth. On which side are you? We are either children of God or we are not. You say, how can you say that, Patrick? Because John chapter 1, verse 12, he came to his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Who are they? Even those who believe on his name, who trust in him, who rely on him, who cast themselves on him, cast themselves on him for their salvation. The freedoms into which the Spirit brings us, number one, indemnity from slavish dread. Number two, the Spirit, through the Spirit, we have this liberty in cooperation into God's family. But thirdly, notice again verse 15, intimate approach to the Father. Intimate approach to the Father. Look at verse 15, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That word Abba is Aramaic, and it's a term of endearment. In fact, it's used even in modern Israel today, where a child will affectionately refer to his father as Abba. Abba, Abba. Jesus, you remember, as he prayed to God, no Israelite did that. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, oh, Abba, Father. He was drawing close to God as his daddy, may I say. And that cry, Father, connotes a sense of trust, dependency. It connotes security. And suggested here, beloved, is that through the Spirit, believers in Christ have a sense of free, uninhibited approach to the Father, intimate approach to God the Father, whom they adore with deep affection and in whom they rest with utter confidence. Abba. No longer are they slaves driven by fear, but sons drawn to their heavenly father in the most profound intimacy, in the most profound fellowship is what the word of God is saying here. I like how one writer describes this blessing of intimate relationship with God, which believers have with God their father. He says this quote, believers have been emancipated. They no longer serve a master who tells them what to do, when to do it, how long, how often, and where. We have been freed and therefore are free indeed. God purchased us. The payment was his son's death. Listen, 
While he had every right to use us as slaves, he tore the bill of sale into shreds and drafted a new document, adoption papers. He's not merely a kinder, gentler master. He's our Abba, end quote. I like that. By the Spirit, those who are led by the Spirit, those who are under the Lordship of the Spirit, they cry, Abba, Father. Crying is an evidence of what? Life, life of a newborn. Baby cries, aha, there, there is a healthy baby. And similarly, those who have been born again by the Spirit will cry out to God, will cry out to him, will pray to him, however inarticulate those prayers might be. Why will they pray? Why? Because Galatians 4 verse 6, because your sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That is why in Acts 2, when we read of those early Christians, no sooner had they come to faith in Christ than we are told they were baptized and in what they started doing, they continued in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. No sooner had Paul been converted, he was formerly called Saul. No sooner had Saul been converted than here's what God said to him in, to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verse 11. Behold, he's praying. He's praying. The liberty into which the Spirit brings us, indemnity from slavish dread, incorporation into God's family, intimate approach to the Father, and finally this morning, a fourth freedom into which the Spirit brings believers in Christ is this, an immense inheritance from the Father. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Word of God is saying here, once again highlighting the function of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, that through the instrumentality, through the agency of the Spirit, the Word of God is saying here, all who have been adopted into God's family as sons of God, what is true of them? They enter into a vast, illimitable resource, the vast, illimitable resources of God referred to in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 4 as an inheritance that is incorruptible, imperishable, and unfading. And here's the wonderful truth of this inheritance. The Spirit of God has superintended whereby they become heirs of God, which means this, that everything God has promised, they will receive. Go back to when God made covenant with Abram and God told him of this inheritance that he would get. You remember what God told him he would get? The world. Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says, all things are yours. Whether angels or principalities or dominions, all things are yours. You are Christ and Christ is God. The word of God is saying here that when we become saved, God adopts us into his family. The word he uses here for adoption has to do with the rights of a fully grown person, a male in that culture, who inherits all that his father has. That's what the word of God is saying. When we become saved, God gives us an inheritance. Look what's even more interesting. He says, we are fellow heirs with Christ. We are joint heirs with him, which means that everything Christ has, we have. Do you know the word of God says we're going to share in that glory? Everything that Christ has, 
will and already are ours, but will come to full manifestation at his return. Everything we'll inherit except one thing, of course, and that is what? Worship, which belongs alone to God. But here's, here's how John puts it. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doesn't yet appear what we're going to be. First John 3, verse 2. But we know that when he appears, we're going to be like him because we're going to see him as he is. Our bodies are going to be fashioned according to his glorious body. We are going to be like him in every way. Imagine. Listen. I'm going to use the word imagine, but I change because it will blow your mind. Truth be told. That's why John says, behold, look with amazement. That's the idea of the word. Be look with amazement. What manner, what foreign kind of love is this? That we should be called children of God. It doesn't yet appear. You look at us right now, and what do we look like? There are the marks of death in us. In this body we groan, as we're going to see in the next paragraph, next time we come. We are headed for the grave. It doesn't yet appear what we're going to be, but we are going to be immensely and we can say this humbly we're going to be immensely great again are you saved this morning do you know christ and if you profess to be saved are you walking with him are you living under the lordship of the spirit are you in that regard are you being led by the spirit and are you enjoying the liberty of the spirit trust you will if you're not saved or we need to do some business with the lord